In a world where heresy blankets the airwaves, religious stuffed shirts suck the life out of Sunday morning, and prosperity teachers rob grandmothers of their pensions, three unassuming ministers endeavor to shine the light of biblical theology and put the fun back in fundamentalism. Broadcasting live from the Hall of Dogma... Welcome in to episode five of the Gospel Friends. I'm David. I'm Chase. And I'm not Nick. Whoa. Wait, where's Nick? This show has gotten off to a terrible start already. What's happened? Actually, we'd like to introduce Kevin, uh, good friend of the show, Angry Code on Twitter. Am I supposed to tell anybody that? That's fine. Okay, so Angry Code on Twitter joining us this week. Nick is on vacation. Woo! I believe uh, Nick is vacationing in the Southamptons. Because uh, he's secretly rich. I've always wondered that about. Does about anybody Nick. know where the Southamptons are? I just they're up north. I think <laughs> I just made that up. They're somewhere south of the Hamptons. All right, Kevin. Uh, every every person that comes on the show uh, has to have a uh, alter ego. Um, as not listen, has to have does have because we only let people on the show that have powers and stuff. Freudian being the slip, Hall of dogma. dogma. So, what is your alter ego? I'm Rev Verbage. Captain Crunchy, what's your I am able to say complicated theological words while eating a bowl of cereal. I can just keep talking and talking and talking and talking and, well, you get, you the, get the idea. Yeah. I get I get the idea. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go with Captain Septum. <laughs> Captain Septum. One thing the, about Kevin is um, he's needed to have some uh, nasal surgery for about... Um, Ever? 30 years now. Well, but the thing is, when he vibrates his septum at a certain frequency, it causes earthquakes and buildings to fall over. And honestly, if you have that power, I don't know if you're going to have the surgery. I, probably not. I wouldn't. But uh, fans of the show may notice some rather deep breathing at times. And if you do, that would be Captain Septum. Or guest star James Earl Jones. Either one. I tell you what, guys, instead of commenting on deep breathing, how about we talk about what's on tap for today, starting with you, David. What's on tap for the show? We're going to talk about an uh, article. Uh, well, this was uh, motivated by an article by uh, Kevin DeYoung, I believe, talking about Satan's simple plan um, about how Satan wants to keep us from communion with Christ. And so based on that, it got me thinking this week, kind of pastorally, how do we know if we are drifting in our relationship with God? And if so... Uh, if we recognize that, how, what, what do we do about it? It's going to be uh, hopefully a fruitful conversation today. Sounds good, Kevin. Uh, here in a little bit, we're going to talk about tithing, and no, we don't want your money. Well, we might. Let's not be. Uh, let's not rush. Yeah, now. don't be hasty on that. I mean, you know, we just don't want you to your give money. your money under uh, compulsion. Yes, that's much better. We're also going to play a great new game called Name That Pastor. As well as uh, play Take It or Leave It, um, we got some good categories and topics to talk about here today, including spiritual gifts, no more pink balloons, music of the spheres, and uh, a racist sign in our own Alabama that's making headlines today. That would be a shock. By the way, um, just in, in case uh, halfway through this uh, podcast we pass out, uh, today the Hall of Dogma has uh, been turned into the Hall of Stench. As we apparently had a um, small... Biggest rat in all of history died in our A tragic studio. death, apparently about five minutes after we recorded last week, <laughs> and sat here in the heat for um, 
for the last seven days. We so. might become the first podcasters to die while recording their show, which would make us legendary, but it would orphan a lot of children. Kudos to Captain Crunchy for ridding the Hall of Dogma of the uh, mouse earlier. Well, you guys, not you, I'm really talking about David and Nick, acted like... You know, it was a snake or something, and y'all jumping around on your chairs. Gosh. I am. I was not eager to do anything about the dead rat. I, I am saw eager. That. You I, summoned me over, and you and Nick were just staring there, looking at it. Yes, I did. I Gracious. am eager to talk about this first uh, first segment today. Y'all it does that? parents listening at home? We are going to use the "nu" word here, so just warning. The "nu" word we're talking about today is nude or naked, but that's not "nu," is it? No, so it's nude. Uh, for our Oh No, You Didn't segment this week, church uh, in Virginia. Here's the headline. Uh, a church in the U.S. state of Virginia has taken the bizarre decision to allow its congregation to attend services in the nude. The N-U word. Hey, by the way, folks, we don't make these stories up. No, we don't. This is for real. This is uh, apparently a for real thing. Pastor Alan Parker, the leader of Whitetail Chapel... <laughs> In the town of South. By the way, we don't make these names up either. These names have not been changed okay. to protect the innocent. So Southampton, Virginia, Whitetail Chapel, uh, Pastor Alan Parker, came to the decision to allow naked worship after concluding, concluding the clothing requirements of other churches were overly pretentious and decided his own flock should be free to forego such materialism if they desire. He believes he's in good company, claiming many of the most important moments in the Bible happened while the protagonists were nude. Including the birth of all the major saints. Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, I have, like, check my son's action Bible. I don't think any of them, like any of the stories start out with, here's these people. They were nude. Here's what happened. <laughs> You, we have to be cautious with this story, but it's it's a real story at a real church with a real name and, and a real pastor okay, who so. – there's a picture of him on here. No, there is. Exuberant – now, you don't see anything except the fact that he's obviously not wearing a shirt, and he's exuberantly preaching behind the pulpit. And I just got to say, I don't want to be judgmental, but some people should wear shirts all of the time, and, and perhaps – Pastor Allen should wear a shirt all the time, whether he's a nudist yeah, or not. Pastor Allen here has a quote. He says, um, "He says if God made us that way, how can it be wrong?" But I, I got to tell Pastor Allen, I'm looking at the picture here, and um, I think it's wrong. I think he's wrong. I, w- I will say the, the the pictures. If you go to the story and look, they're not. He's actually covered up by the pulpit. Yes, this is a fairly... actually by the pulpit and those uh, red flowers in the vases. What do they call those? Poinsettias. Oh, yeah. He's covered up by some poinsettias. You know, last week, I believe it was, y'all did um, bad church names. Yeah. Uh, you could do ironically named churches. That would be uh, good. What's Ye- the what's the chances of a nudist church being called White Tail? Apparently one in one. <laughs> the right. chances are 100%. I will tell you that I am most pleased by the... Uh, so so here we have um, a picture of a husband and wife sitting next to... It. I'm assuming they're husband and wife. They're holding hands. She is clothed. He is not. He is wearing shoes. But I, I, I noticed, like, apparently out of um, out of concern for other parishioners, um, they actually sit on towels. Yeah, that's, that's, the a, seats that's are a good plan. So let me clarify. You said he is naked, but he has shoes on? 
Yeah. Does so, that, he's not totally nude. So we're going with the many events in the Bible happened in the nude, but they were wearing shoes. There, there were no events where they told them, where maybe God said, take off your shoes because this is holding ground. You know, that's a good point. That's a good the point. The idea though. is that nudity is the great equalizer, reminding all those gathered in the church that they are simple human beings and, and that beneath any personal wealth or glamorous outward appearance, they are all more of less more or less the same beneath the clothing, which is a really good message, but I think there's other ways you could find to... Better ways. I th- I like, this is this is an illustration going amok, I think, is, is what we have here. It is. I will say this, uh, on a more serious note, Pastor Allen brings up a, a think, uh, what I think is a fairly pertinent point, and that is, and this is going to be a bit of a shocker to people because we're so used to seeing the pictures of Jesus on the cross uh, with uh, some sort of towel wrapped around him or uh, a loincloth or something like that. Almost certainly, um, Jesus was was crucified on the cross. Uh, Quit showing me that picture. I'm not looking at you. I'm sorry. I was showing some of the pictures. They're singing hymns. <laughs> Gracious. <laughs> Don't go searching for this story, okay? Look, there's, there's only one guy who's – it's the pastor and one guy who doesn't have any clothes oh, on. Oh, yeah, sure enough. It's all blurred out, but wow. They're singing hymns and seeing him. <laughs> nice. Hey, hey, settle down. I'm trying to make a, a really valid gospel point here. I won't show you more Jesus pictures. was crucified completely naked. You know, the, in the scripture it says they divided his garments and they, they cast lots for his outer garments. There's no indication whatsoever that Jesus retained his clothing, but that the soldiers took all of it. And even in the, the first or second century, the Jewish commentators uh, in the Mishnah and in other places that talked about crucifixion uh, seemed to be almost universally agreed that people were crucified completely in the nude. That was part of the shame of it, part of the pain of it, part of the the horror of it. And and, and no, listen, the, the first part of the story, we were kind of uh, uh, having a little fun, but, you know, pointing, th- this does really point us to a deep gospel truth of what our Lord has done for us. Uh, and and it kind of, you know, it makes you realize that there's a lot more to the cross sometimes than we realize. Yeah, I think this is a, um, you know, not to be critical of uh, other churches, but um, I think this is just a bad idea all the way around. I don't. Uh, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a, um, this is a really bad idea and very. Um, I'm losing the word right now, but uh, he, he's creating something there. I think for attention, uh, essentially, and uh, you know, some kind of whatever news coverage or something and uh just no way really around um uh an excuse for for what they're doing and and as we talked about last week uh, on on last week's episode we were talking about how um watching television program programming with naked men and women in there is is never a good idea and is always going to lead you to sin you are not glorifying christ in this situation i mean you you are if you're in a congregation where people are sitting around with no clothes on, your attention is not going to be on Christ, no matter what Pastor Allen is is attempting to do here, although I think it's probably just sensationalism. But your point is is uh, well taken in the fact that, um, you know, Jesus suffered for us in every possible way. And, and, and those of us who have been scarred in our lives deeply by the shame of our sin and 
thinking about how our sin has brought great guilt and shame to us. The fact is Christ suffered all the shame for us on the cross, including uh, apparently that of being um, publicly nude as he was uh, being crucified. Yes. And uh, he suffered shame on our behalf. And, and because of that, we have the opportunity to turn to him, to turn to our Father and receive his righteousness yes. uh, in exchange for our shame. And uh, that is good news of the gospel. And I, I know we're the gospel friends, not the practical friends, but I'm going to assume there are no children at this church. Good point. Good point. Not I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing. There's none in the pictures. Yeah, that so. would be. That would obviously be a real problem. Yeah, that um, would be. Uh, I, look, I think. Well, I think it's a real problem. I think. Yeah, I think the whole thing was a real problem. Huge problem. Yeah, I think the whole thing was a real problem. So, uh, you know, perhaps if if you know if any of you are listening from Virginia, um, maybe just steer clear of steer clear steer clear of whitetail chapel yeah. I'll, I'll say this in closing of the story it sets up a pretty poignant parallel to think about the first adam was naked and because of his sin had to wear clothing the last adam was clothed but to redeem us he was stripped naked so the first brought death at the tree of life the last brought life at the tree of death that's really pretty cool when you think about it and 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 you know for for anyone who's listening i, I think so many times we feel like our life has been defined by our mistakes and what we've done mm. and that we've been defined by those things uh, and and that's you know i've always said this about uh i have nothing against alcoholics anonymous by the way uh, aa i think it's very uh very beneficial good organization the one thing uh from what i know about it that i've always disagreed with is how someone in that program you know is required to stand up and say i'm an alcoholic and and like i think they're kind of taught that like that's how you'll always kind of identify yourself and i, I don't agree with that cuz i don't think that in the grace of christ you're always have to be identified by the things mm-hmm. that you've done in in your in your past and i don't think you have to suffer the shame of your sin because christ has accepted that for uh, for you on the cross if you will turn to him in faith and so amen i think that's important all right so i think we shall we, we yeah, play let's a play a game. Let's do it. I'm going head to head with. Uh, do you think David knows what movie that's from? Would, uh, shall we play a game? Do you know what that's from? Uh, Gospel Friends. No. And Said by Whopper in the movie. The burger. Not the burger. The computer Whopper. Oh no. War games. Gosh. War games. What's yes. that? Oh, this is embarrassing. I don't even think he was born yet. All right, so I'm going head to head against Captain Septum. Well, I hope there's not any uh, not science going. fiction questions here. Uh, and fortunately mm-hmm. for you, there's there's not. The game, name of the game is Name That Preacher. What I'm going to do, gentlemen, is I'm going to give you quotes from a preacher with a little bitty hint in the quote on who it might be. It's going to be a famous person, and I'm going to give you a multiple choice, and you guess whether or not you guess who said the quote. Do you understand that, Kevin? Yes. Okay, okay. good. Here we go. I'm going to go to you, you first, David. Uh-huh. Um, here's the quote, and I wish I could do it in these people's voice, but that is beyond my capabilities. First quote, so I'm going to close by reading from a hero. I have unabashed love for Jonathan Edwards. Okay, unabashed love. If you want to get my backup, say something ugly about Edwards, like talking about my mom, you know. He's not perfect. Boy, oh boy, was he not perfect. He wasn't even a Baptist. Small flaw, small flaw. David, was that Don Carson, A. B, J.I. Packer, C, John Piper, or D, Creflo Dollar? All right. 
I happen to know John Piper's a huge Jonathan Edwards fan. However, that doesn't sound like something that, and Piper was Baptist, but I, I, I'm afraid you're trying to throw me off with Creflo Dollar. Like, he doesn't even belong in that group. Should I have said that? I will tell you up front, both of you, I am not trying to trick you with any of these. All right, John Piper. John Piper is correct. Wait, wait, wait. John Piper said yo. Yes. Really? Yo. How about that? All right, over to you, Kevin. This is a classic quote. One nothing. The more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Was that A, Arius, B, Frank Barker, C, Watchman Nee, D, Tertullian, or E, Joyce Meyer? Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler was not an option. (laughs) Um, I should have gotten a good Matt Chandler. Matt quote Chandler, by the way, is Captain Septim's favorite preacher. I apologize to you, Matt. Uh, I mean, well, Matt and wow. Kevin. He just insulted you. One day I'll show you all my I love Matt Chandler tattoo. <laughs> I don't want to see it. <laughs> I'm going to go with Watchman Knee. Watchman Knee is a good guess. The answer, however, is Tertullian. Hey, if we all went to uh, Whitetail Chapel, we'd already know about your tattoo. Oh. Sorry. Might have to cut that out in editing <laughs> for the censors. <laughs> David, back to you. Neither the son, neither son loved the father for himself. We're talking about the prodigal son. Uh, they both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. Tim Keller. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Is it A, Dick Lucas, B, Martin Lloyd-Jones, C, Kenneth Copeland, or D, Tim Keller? D, Tim Keller. You got it. Good job. read that sermon. That's a good sermon, isn't it? Okay, so he gets (laughs) Tim Keller quotes. I don't get any Matt Chandler quotes. Sorry, man. That's not fair, is it? Not fair at all. Okay, over to you. Um, You'll win it on penalty kicks. This is a this is a short one. Um, the quote is: "If you're not in hell tomorrow, you should be dancing." If you're not in hell, Mark Driscoll. <laughs> tomorrow, I should have had a a, a, a Mark Driscoll quote. If you're here. not in hell tomorrow, you, you should, should be, be dancing. dancing. Is that a Ryan Whitley, b Francis Chan, or c Francis Bavier? Francis Chan. Francis Chan is correct. Does anybody know who Francis Bavier is? Wasn't that the lady off of uh, the Archie show? That's close. Francis Bavier is, in fact, Aunt Oh, B. Aunt B, Aunt B. That's right. I was thinking, who is uh, Carol O'Connor's wife on that show? Oh, she just died recently, yeah. actually. I don't That's remember That's what I was thinking of. You're right. Francis Bavier's uh, Aunt B. Okay. I, I A strange love, bird, by the way, if you've ever very read strange biography. Bird. I also love Francis Chan and the remake of The Karate Kid. <laughs> nice. All right, um, so the score is two to one. Kevin is clawing back from the pits of despair. Jackie Chan. Over to you, two David. To okay. Seeing that a pilot steers the ship in which we sail, who will never allow us to perish, even in the midst of shipwrecks, there is no reason why our minds should be overwhelmed with fear and overcome with weariness. Is that A, Augustine? B, Jacobus Arminius, C, John Calvin, or D, Rob Bell? Calvin. Calvin is correct. David, you are three for three. Three for three. Over to you, Kevin. You get another short one. 
Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Is that A, Tim Keller? George Washington. B, Martin Luther. Or C, Jesse Duplantis. Could, could you uh, reread that? Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Is that A, Tim Keller, B, Martin Luther, or C, Jesse Duplantis? Could you use that in a sentence? <laughs> apple. I would like to plant my apple tree tomorrow, even if the world ends. Um, who was the first person again? Duplantis. Tim Keller, Martin Luther, or Jesse Duplantis? Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis is close. That is, in fact, a Tim, not a not a Tim Keller, a Martin Luther quote from way, way, way back in the By day. By close, he meant that um, the answer was they were next to each other in alphabet. <laughs> Last one to you, David. Give me Scotland or I die. John Weatherspoon, A, John Calvin, B, John Patton, C, or John Knox, D. John Patton. John Patton is close. Ah, John Patton, known for that line that he was spoken to him before he became a missionary, you will be eaten by cannibals. Yeah. He did it anyway. The answer is, in fact, John Knox, the thundering Scott. Even though you lost, like the United States in soccer, you still advance advance. on to the uh, next group, the knockout stages. That means you've got the next topic. Well done, gentlemen. All right. It was good plenty of Kevin. Kevin, it's okay, man. Don't cry, man. It's you cool. can talk. It's cool. It's cool. Kevin DeYoung, uh, one of my uh, favorite contributors to um, uh, the Gospel Coalition, wrote a uh, wrote a little blog uh, a couple weeks ago called Satan's Simple Plan. And uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, he just talked about what does the devil want to do with you? Does he want to haunt, haunt your house? No. Does he want you to um, make make your head spin around? No. Does he want you to get, get you to carve a pentagram in your leg? No. Um, ultimately, what the devil wants from you, according to um, Kevin DeYoung, is to keep you from Christ, which I happen to agree with. He had a great line in the article. He talked about how um, uh, if he makes you as sick as Job or rich as Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, biblical character there, uh, just so long as you forget your creator in the days of your youth, then he will be happy. So making you sick or making you rich. So it really got me thinking about um, how um, how maybe easily we can drift from God, and um, and and if if indeed there is a which I believe there is a, a battle going on, supernatural battle for the hearts and the minds and the souls of men and women and children, how easily it is for us to get distracted and drift from our relationship with Christ, and uh, I think this happens often not because um, as as Kevin brings up in this article. You know, it it may not be what it seems like. Yes, maybe it's making you sick, but yes, maybe it's making you rich and prosperous. Anything to get you to pull from Christ. Mm-hmm. And not that you would necessarily say you're walking away from, from Jesus, but that it just happens that other things come into your life and you put your focus on them and you began to drift. So uh, just, just kind of thinking about that, talking through it a little bit, how do we know when we are... Uh, drifting or when we have drifted from Christ? Like, how could we know, even sitting now, the Bible tells us over and over, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. But one of the problems with deception is if you're under deception, you don't know it. So uh, what, what, are, what are ways that people who are listening 
um, even us uh, in this room, how could we know if we have begun to drift in our relationship with Jesus? And I, I kind of want us to wrap it up with some practical, what do we do about it? But uh, maybe, Chase, we'll start with you, just you know, from a pastoral perspective. Uh, how can we recognize that? Gosh, well, as you say, when, when we're deceived, it's, it's hard to know. I feel like what happens, though, in, in these type situations where where the the enemy pulls us away from uh, a sincere and pure devotion uh, to Jesus, that in, in God's grace, the Holy Spirit gives us moments of awakening when it seems like even though we've strayed from him, um, even though even though we've pulled away, even though there's sin there, there's like this, these moments of grace where he speaks through the fog and awakens our heart. And it's like we hear that that still small voice, that still small call to repent. And so I think for me that that that's one of the ways. The verse I was quoting earlier, Second Corinthians eleven three, Paul says, "I am afraid that just as de- as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ." Well, that's. The, one of the key attacks of the enemy is that he will seek to pull us away. And, and, and the, the grace of God gives us these moments of awakening. And practically speaking, I think maybe I'm going to give a Sunday school answer here. But when your prayer life is low or non-existent, when your time in the Word is weak and infrequent, then I think that's just two very easy to see clues that something bad is happening. Um, uh, yeah, but it's going to the, the Second Corinthians chapter eleven verse three, just from the ESV. Um, just reading it all out, um, Paul says, "I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ." So, thinking about that passage for a minute, one of the things that I want to say is that he says there, "Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus." Um, one question that I think it's good for people to ask is in the in the silence in your life when all of a sudden you you have some time and at that moment nothing is pressing for your attention where do, where do your thoughts go like where does what does your mind drift to like what what are what are you immediately pulled to in those moments to say oh, i'd like to do this or think about this and i'm not i'm not trying to um, come up with, um, you know, it's not okay to have a hobby or it's not okay to have something you enjoy. But you just think about maybe some of the, you know, I know for me, one of the things that I wrestle with is mindlessly in my life, if I just kind of find myself at a moment kind of bored, nothing going on, I, I reach for my phone and I turn on, you know, I immediately, I, you know, get on Facebook or something and just start scrolling through. And, and, and here's one of the things that I think about is, you know, not, it, it don't seem super fundamentalist here, but why am I not you know, in those moments, pull toward maybe pulling up the Bible app on my phone and reading some of the Word of God. I mean, I typically will will hit Twitter, hit Facebook, and just kind of mindlessly search through those things. Where do your thoughts go in the silence? I think that's a good question to ask. I think you've got to be diligent to define the win. Um, you know, they say that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. But uh, as I heard somebody put it one time, I mean, the devil's got it easy because. It doesn't matter if you run ahead from God, if you fall behind God, or if you turn to the right or left of God, if you're not walking with God. Mm. And so just like we define a win in our careers, uh, in our families, and our finances, we need to be diligent to say, 
because it is so easy to drift off to say on a regular basis, how is my prayer life? How is my time in the Word? How is my relationship with God? Because it is so easy for that thing, whether like it said in the article, whether it's sickness or whether it's health. Because just like one person may get sick and fall away out of frustration, I know I've caught myself uh, and my family has caught ourselves praying diligently for God to do something. And then when he does it, we, we're we so happy it was done. We don't think to thank him about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a verse from Hosea where uh, God talks about um, – he's talking to his people. And he said, yeah, I fed you in the wilderness, brought you to a good land. But then when I fed you, you were full, and when you were full, you forgot me. And I think that's something that that's a, uh, you know, I, I think people, I think people sometimes um, struggle with. All right, why why do I have need in my life? Why do I have? Why do I want for things? But you know, it may be. I, I think it's possible that one of the most loving things that God is doing in your life and my life is keeping us needy, because prosperity and richness and not needing anything from God doesn't go well in Scripture um, for the people of God. And and that verse, when you were full, you forgot me. You know, I think that's one of the, the even with the heresies there of the, you know, the prosperity gospel that, that God's whole purpose for your life is for you to be rich. Yet when you look in the Bible, many people who reached that forgot about God. And I don't think God's all about leading us to places where we would forget about him. Um, Chase, I may ask you if you would speak on too the importance of uh, of other people in our lives in just a moment. If you could maybe think about like blind spots in our lives um, and the importance of having people in your life who can speak to those. Because um, I just want to say that I think that you know, and I want to do a good job of communicating what I am thinking about here. This drifting, like like Kevin's talking about, happens when you don't realize it. I, I've often likened it to going out, maybe if you've ever been to the beach, you go out in the waves, maybe directly in front of your condo or your beach house, and then you just start playing out in the ocean. Maybe you're playing with your kids or you're floating or whatever, and, and time's ticking by, and then all of a sudden you, you look back toward the beach to look back toward the beach house, but you realize all of a sudden it's not in front of you anymore. It's actually way down way down the uh uh, the the coast there, and you realize that when you weren't paying attention, you just started drifting. And I think our lives gets gets filled with really good things, entertainment, um, um, you know, sports, recreation, hobbies, um, and and our lives get filled with these things, but they pull us away from the best thing. And I, I'm like Chase. I think when that starts happening, the Holy Spirit will speak to us and let us know that. But Chase, what about having people in our lives to be able to? Uh, help us um, recognize some of those blind spots. Well, it's it's a great a great topic to talk about. I think uh, that in America, in particular, we tend to be slightly isolationist, uh, not not vulnerable. Uh, we have this mentality of we can make it through ourselves, especially the men. Uh, but like you see in Scripture, over and over, these these exhortations and challenges, like Hebrews ten twenty four. Uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the, you know, the great day, the end of time. Um, and, and uh, you know, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. You just don't see lone wolves in Scripture. Even Jesus always had his team with him. 
Um, and, and I think we have a calling um, as, as the people of God to, to sit and think about. Now, this is what the first part of that Hebrews 10 passage says, 24. Sit around and think, how can I encourage and stir Kevin up to his calling? How can I encourage and push David on to do the good deeds of, of God? And you guys are supposed to do that for me, and we're supposed to do each other that for each other in the body of Christ, and we're supposed to encourage each other. So pushing each other along to do the things of the kingdom, uh, hopefully that breaking us out of uh, any sort of uh, complacency. Uh, and then as we're going, we're all encouraging each other. It, you know, it's, it's just the, the beauty of the body of Christ. It's not a uh, solo thing. One of the things that you have to be able to do there, I think, is allow people to speak into your life, though. And sometimes we are not... Um Sometimes it's di- that's difficult. It's difficult to receive what may seem like criticism, but if someone's trying to encourage you or trying to, you know, point out an area that you may not see, a blind spot you may not see, I mean, you're going to have to get over being defensive about that. Um, and 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 I, I guess you know, I think Kevin, you've talked before about it's important who it's coming from, and and knowing that hey, they care about you, and uh, that you realize you know they have your best interest at heart. But you've got to. You got to push your pride down at that point, and and listen to what someone's saying, and maybe not immediately be defensive. In that vein of, of thought, you know, going all the way back to creation, where uh, God said it was not good for man to be alone, and He created a helpmate uh, to complete Adam. I know that my wife, in a totally sincere way, she will come to me sometime, and she'll go, "I can tell you're really in the Word. You're really praying." And then she'll come to me other times and go, "How's your How's your relationship with God going?" Yeah. Because, it, and so, and like I said, not in not in like in, in any kind of bad way, but just because you know, she's known me for twenty years, and and she can see that, and she can come to me and say that, and I think it's it's very important. Yeah, in the real marriage book that Mark and Grace Driscoll did, which I know you, your small group um, here at Agape has been going through, and our, our group just started. It actually talks about spouses are supposed to be for each other's sanctification, and so there should be this. You're trying to help bring your spouse toward Christ. I want to kind of wrap up this segment this way, guys, and I'll, I'll come to go to Kevin first, then Chase, then I'll, I'll end it. But um, uh, <laughs> it, uh, Chase is talking to me in chat, and it was funny. Um, we um, All right, someone's listening right now, and they think, yes, you're right. I have drifted. Okay, I, I feel like this is me. I know that I am not where I was or where I want to be, what's some advice you would give? Maybe just a piece of advice to say, where, where does that person start in, in, in drawing closer to God? Yes, we know you're supposed to, but I don't want to sound like you know, a, a you know, preacher speak here, like draw closer to God. Like practically, what would your practical advice be for someone to walk away from the podcast and say, okay, I'm going to start doing this thing here in my, in my effort and my desire to pursue Christ? So, Kevin, do you have anything toward that? I think they just have to be honest with God that you know I have sinned against you. I have I have let things um, distract me from you, and 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 reach out to God in prayer and say, you know, be my focus. And I think it needs to be that. Too often, uh, prayer is our last resort. You know, we something comes up, we try to fix it everywhere we can, then we pray. And so I'd say in this scenario would be one of the great scenarios to start with prayer. I, I agree with that. I like that. Uh, I'll say this: a practical something to do. If you're if you're listening and, and you're far away from God right now, as fast as you can, 
grab your cell phone and text two or three people that you really trust and know have your back and know are committed believers and say, hey, I realize I have fallen away. Will you spur me on? Will you do the Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 thing for me? Will you encourage me? Will you pray for me? Okay, so that that's like the first thing I'd do. Email or text some people I really trust. Uh, and, and then, I, Kevin, you're absolutely right. I, I would get about the business of prayer and being in the Word. Uh, William Gurnall um, lived in the, the 1600s. He was uh, an Englishman and man of the church, a uh, very interesting guy. I'm going to give you a quote of his on prayer. He said, Satan cannot deny but that great wonders have been wrought by prayer. As the spirit of prayer goes up, so his kingdom comes down. Satan's strategies against prayer are three. First, if he can, he will keep you from prayer. If that's not feasible, secondly, he will strive to interrupt you in prayer. And thirdly, if that plot takes not, he will labor to hinder the success of thy prayer. Hmm. So know that you face an enemy who will fight against you, and that's why I'm saying first thing you should do is is raise up prayer from two or three other people. Let them know you're in the middle of the battle. Amen. I I, I would I want to point people toward um, fasting, and uh, certainly I think there's a there's a absolute biblical biblical connotation of that toward fasting of food. But um, the kind of fasting I have in mind is almost a laying down of your idols. In other words, what are those things in your life that are con- continually drawing your attention. Some of those things are, are necessary, needed things. For example, someone may say, well, my job draws my attention daily. And, and I understand, hey, i got to go to work Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. But what are those things that you're like, again, what are your thoughts continually going to? Is it kind of the social media, you know, it, it, like like many of you know us, maybe you find yourself spending a lot of hours on YouTube videos or Facebook or, you know, some kind of social media, or, or maybe it's entertainment with movies or television. Is there is there something that just for a season you need to lay down? And somebody, you know, the, the whole purpose of that is so you can use that time to pursue God. Um, I've always kind of taught, like, how do you recognize your idols? Um, it's those clenched, those things that you've clenched your fist around, those things that you just absolutely think, I could not and do not want to put this down or let this go. You de- you'll defend that, and you'll excuse uh, laying that down, all types of reasons to say, now I don't have to do that. Uh, but if you can recognize some of those things that are pulling from your attention, lay them down for a season, whether it's uh, you know a week, two weeks, a month, lay those things down and try to use that time more dedicated toward pursuit of Christ. And I think God honors that um, sacrifice of fasting of your idols. But run to Jesus, as these guys have said, in prayer and, and making that time um, and uh, look for those people in your life to encourage um, and that uh, that none of us are falling away, as, as Chase was uh, was reading about earlier. So hopefully someone found that. Uh, Good that word. That be helpful. All right, guys, it's over to me. It's time to play or at least participate in uh, Take It or Leave It. And the way the game works these days, this will be the first show we've ever done with this game where we didn't adjust any of the rules. I am going to throw out two categories to you guys, and you take the the category that you guys like and want to comment on and decide whether you want to uh, like it or lump it. So category number one, or the choice, the first choice you get to make is either A, Big Brother Facebook, or Mm. B, Sweet Home Alabama. Which one of those sounds the most interesting? All right, Angry Code in... uh in a deference to you being here for the first time, I'm going to let you 
that you picked there? Uh, I would go with Big Brother Facebook. Oh, I would go with Big Brother Facebook. Big Brother Facebook. Here All we right. go. Let me tell you the story you passed up. The story you passed up is that there is a new sign on I-20 in Leeds heading towards Atlanta in Alabama that says, and this is a billboard, not just a sign. It says, anti-racist is a code word for anti-white. That I was, saw that sign yesterday. Did you really? via oh. Matt Murphy uh, on Facebook, a, a radio host uh, down our ways. Um, okay, I, I, I wish I would have picked that one. Yeah, I kind of want to go That's back. That's all right. Now. Well, here's here's this one. This one's, this one's very interesting as no well. No mulligans here, apparently. Apparently not. No, this is from uh, Tolly on Facebook who posted that in the last few months, Facebook ran a very interesting secret mood manipulation experiment on hundreds of thousands of people, possibly even us, since we all have Facebook accounts. Here's what they did, and then I'm going to ask you, do you like this, or are you okay with it, or do you lump it? They fiddled with people's feeds so that some people saw mostly negative stories from their friends and the positive stories were suppressed, or vice versa. They, some people only saw mainly positive stories without negative stories, and then they um, examined all of the things that the people who had been fed those feeds posted to see whether the positivity or the negativity affected what they posted. And as you might imagine, they found out that people who were fed a constant diet of positive Facebook posts were much more likely to write positively themselves. People who were fed a a constant diet of negative posts from their friends would also join in the negativity. Do y'all have a problem with that sort of manipulation? Do y'all have friends on Facebook that post positive things? <laughs> hey, maybe that experiment is still ongoing with you, David. Okay, is this a proven deal? It is a proven deal. That they did this? Yes. All right. It is Kevin, admitted and proven. I, I'm glad David asked that question because I'm so tired of the go-to settings, select, I do not want my brains eaten by zombies, <laughs> disallow. Um I, like manipulation of all kinds is on my list of biggest abominations. Um, I have seen people's lives uh, destroyed uh, for long-lasting ramifications. So, I mean, there's there's nothing in detail I can go to other than that. That is just that is just evil. Um, what if somebody had like I, I don't want to be all bleeding heart here, but what if somebody had committed suicide because they went into crazy depression as part of this experiment? Um, but I, I'm, I'm blessed in my Facebook feed because I have one person at either extreme. Like I've got the one who everything is sunshine and rainbows and another one that everything is in the world from a stub toe to a bounce check. So I, I, I apparently was not part of that experiment. But uh, manipulation, grade A, evil. All right. All right. So you lump it. Do we know – Okay, we we it was Facebook that was doing this. Yes, this has been reported by the Atlantic.com and many other people. It seems to be a very much confirmed story. All right, I'm going to take a different angle on this. Um, here's one thing: I I don't blame Facebook here. I blame us for our investment in Facebook. Like, you know, to say okay, you know, Facebook needs to adhere to this moral compass. 
Um, you know, look, they're an organization out to make money and quite honestly, uh, you know, manipulating people to some degree is exactly what they want to do. They want to manipulate people to integrate Facebook and do every aspect of their life, whether it is your email, whether it is the way that you find out about birthdays and calendar and events. They want people to integrate Facebook into every bit of their life. I don't think the issue there, I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised by what Facebook did. Um, should they do that or not? It's, you know, you know, Based on, I'm not expecting them to operate from a biblical standpoint. So, I, you know, I to me, it is on us. It is on the people to, you know, we need, I think, to push back from this tool some. And I don't want to go on a, too big of an anti-Facebook rant here, but I think we are spending a good bit of our life looking at how other people are living and what's going on with their day and, you know, what funny or quirky thing are they saying right now or what bit of gossip can I pick up or whatever. And I'm not you know, I'm saying that's the only reason you get on Facebook. Don't anybody get, you know, get mad. If you do, email me at Nick at gospelfriends.com. <laughs> but I just I think we have I think we've bitten down too hard on the Facebook uh, on, on the Facebook uh, hook. And, uh, you know, I don't. To me, it's not looking at Facebook going. You guys need to. You guys need to honor our trust a little bit more. It's it's on us saying you you need to stop putting so much trust in Facebook and don't get so so irritated when they do something with uh with all this that you've invested in with them. So I'm going to give it a. I'm going to give it a slight lump. Okay, uh, you know, a slight lump there. So let me ask you this at J David McConnell. <laughs> do you have the same feelings for Twitter? Oh, I love Twitter. Twitter's That's great. what I thought. <laughs> David, can we sum up what you just said by saying you need to get out of the Facebook and get your face in the book? Nice. Nice. Wow. Put that on a coffee cup mug or a coffee cup mug or something. That's good. Okay, for the record, I, for one, welcome our new Facebook overlords. (laughs) Going on to the next category. No, I don't. Facebook, stop doing this. It's absolutely evil. Yeah, here's your choice, gentlemen. The category number one is kindness. Category number two, music of the spheres. Which one do you want to take on? I take racist billboard. <laughs> racist billboard <laughs> nice. for $100. What Alabama city allowed a racist billboard to be put on their interstate? Don't answer that. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I kind of want to do the racist billboard, too. Uh, mutiny. We have mutiny against the. Uh, we have mutiny here. Okay, so the, um, racist billboard. Like it or lump it. <laughs> <laughs> I lump it. Good for you. <laughs> I right. would like to even know what that billboard means. I'd love to know who paid for it because my goodness gracious, that is. Could, just could I do? Chock a, could I do stupid. a real quick? Uh, could I do a real quick uh, public service announcement for everybody? Please do. For all the Christians out there who are listening to our podcast, uh, just just. You know, to verify, Jesus wasn't white. Okay, I just want to throw that Shocker out. I want to throw week. that out there. Breaking because news. <laughs> now I don't actually know that whoever posted that billboard claims to be Christians, no. but I know so many people who claim to follow Jesus, but they're racist. Like they they they're obviously outspoken prejudice or racist. And I'm like, do you understand? Jesus was not blonde hair, blue eyes. White skin. Yep. You know? Not white. Middle he, Eastern. If he if he was alive today getting on a plane, he's getting profiled. Very possibly, yeah. Bottom line. And by the way, probably not long hair. 
No evidence that Jesus was a Nazarene, and every other Jewish man other than the guys who took the vow of the Nazarites uh, was was short-headed, short-haired. Which what that means, white people, which I am one of, if there is a superior race, we're not it. Not it. Because, you know, the greatest human that ever lived was not of our particular racial persuasion. That's right. Anyway. I've always thought it was kind of cool he was kind of in between, you know, so— and in the middle, middle, Middle East. By the way, I've also never gotten Christians who are anti-Jewish, but I guess we won't have to get into that. <laughs> now today. that is just abysmally stupid. It's as stupid as racism, really. Okay, um, what was it? Musical spheres, kindness, or music of the spheres? I go with music of the spheres. All right, let me tell you the story you turned down. It's rather interesting. You should check it out. Trevor Wax this week wrote an article about the kindness that will kill your church. Basically, Trevin made the point that if your church is focused on being kind to everyone, it will be the death knell for that church. You'll have to read that article on your own. Should pick that one. Um, It's a pretty interesting one. Here's uh, what we are going to talk about, though. Tim Lambesis, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that name or not uh, properly or not, and frankly, I don't care. Tim Lambesis was the lead singer and founder of the, quote, Christian group, As I Lay Dying. Um, He recently was convicted of attempting to hire a hitman to murder his wife after having multiple affairs on her and deciding that he was going to be an atheist rather than a Christian. All of that, obviously, we lump. Here's the part I want you guys to comment on and decide. uh, Basically, give me a like if you believe him or a lump if you think he's lying. Here's his quote. Lambisa says, We toured with more Christian bands who actually aren't Christians than bands that are. In 12 years of touring with As I Lay Dying, I would say maybe one in 10 Christian bands we toured with were actually Christian bands. Well, I have some, you know, um, I have uh, was a youth pastor here at Agape for a while, and I uh, actually had um, several of the guys who were uh, in our youth group who were kind of into the um, the 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 heavy is it alternative uh, heavy the Christian metal, heavy metal uh, Christian heavy metal, and uh, actually uh, some of our guys actually started a band, um, a, he- a heavy metal Christian band, and they were doing some touring here. Uh, in our city, and I actually went to some of the shows. Uh, we actually had a couple of shows here at uh, the Hall of Dogma, and uh, and so uh, these guys were very familiar with As I Lay Dying, and um, and actually kind of some of the, although they were not you know touring with some of these uh, higher tier bands, but uh, they actually said that's a true statement that uh, they're you know that from their perspective, many of the bands that were kind of touring with that scene were doing so for uh, Christian heavy metal was booming. At the time, and it seemed like there was a lot of money in it, and so that, you know, they seemed to agree that they were running with or around a lot of bands who it seemed like um, were Christian only in name or only at certain times. Now, I want to let Kevin, so I'm going to give it a, 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 do you say a like to that statement? Like it's true yes, or not? like means you agree. Yeah, with I, th- I think that, you, you know, based him. on what I'm being told, again, based on what I'm being told by by some guys who say they know, I would like that. I do want to make a comment on Tim Labesis, but I'll, I'll let, uh, I'll come back to that. Well, I, I can say going back to the 90s, um, we had, uh, the church I was at at the time had several bands from Nashville come in and do concerts, and they were pretty sincere about the fact they said, they could go down uh, the list of artists, specifically writers, 
who were uh, homosexuals, who were atheists. Uh, they said, you know, most most of your charting songs are written by people who are not followers of Christ. So, mm. you know, this is something I've heard for a, a long time. And you look at the number of guys that, that probably came up during Chase's and I's time, uh, and I, for life, man, I can't think of the guy's name now, the guy who sang uh, Watch the Lamb. Uh, Russ Taff? No, no, no. The one that came, anyway, he came out of the Al closet. Al Denson? No. But uh, the number of oh oh Ray Bolts Ray Bolts you know the no. number the number of Christian artists who have come out of the closet you know Jennifer Knapp Ray Bolts the number who have uh, you know Ever Evanescence started off I bought their album at Family Christian Store and they are very adamant in their role that they are not a Christian band so. Uh, I definitely think, and I'm convinced that everybody in Southern Gospel was not good at country music. <laughs> oh, you can send your comments to Kevin at theholofdogma.com. Uh, one thing about the Tim Lambesis, and I, I, um, I would have to find the article and post, but I actually read an interview that he did, and uh, you know, he talked about in the article how he, um, you know, he had begun to question a few things about faith and and uh but around the same time he began cheating on his wife and he found that uh not being concerned about the bible and not being concerned about uh christian values uh made it you know he didn't feel guilty for those things that he was doing and and that coming to the conclusion that there was no god coming to the conclusion that the bible was false um he he was able to do these things like cheat on his wife without feeling guilty and eventually of course he actually tried to hire somebody apparently to you know murder his wife but here's uh, mark driscoll talks about how most theological problems are actually moral problems in disguise yeah that 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 most of the time it is not an un uh it is not an uh uninformed mind it's an unwilling heart and that um that many people as they um pulling away from God and, and, and or deciding, hey, I don't believe the Bible is actually truly the Word of God, is actually a, a way for them to feel better about their sin. And, 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 and some of that drifting and some of that pulling away is actually just a way to, to be able to kind of confirm, hey, it's okay what I'm doing here. And, and reading Tim's comments, it seems certainly that was happening with, with him. That's a great point. Well, gentlemen, I, I want to ask you a follow-up question, and we don't have a lot of time, so answer it pretty quickly. If all of that's true, should we still listen to Christian music? If a large portion or even a significant portion of Christian artists out there are not in it for Jesus but are in it for entertainment or, or whatever other reason, um, does that mean we should just listen to secular music completely? Should we just not listen to music? What 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 do you think here? Well, one one thing I've struggled with that whole debate, and this could be a whole show unto itself, is somewhere along the line we came up where there's secular music and Christian music, and there's a big hang up on whether or not as a Christian you should listen to secular or Christian music. But we don't seem to go. Okay, do you watch secular movies or Christian movies? Do you watch? And maybe just because Christian movies are horrible, but <laughs> but we don't say you know do you watch Christian TV or secular TV? But for some reason we have set aside music, and I do believe that music is a powerful thing. Um, but I think I think just like uh, you know preachers, just like the apostles were imperfect. Uh, these are imperfect people, and and just like God used Pharaoh. To free um, his the, the Israelites, 
he can use uh, these people to author the music he wants authored. So I don't yeah. think just because they're not Christians uh, eliminates the value of the music. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that that gets you into, um, uh, you know, even with even with preachers, the, the Word of God uh, will not go out and return void. And so I believe that um, it's like people who, who run into, you know, they, they were listening to a pastor for years. They felt convicted by those messages that that pastor was preaching, then find out later that he was having a, a multi-year affair, and then they begin to question, well, you know, was was what I was learning then not true and those things. And But, you know, I, I think a I think God can work through anyone to bear fruit, and uh, and so whether it is a song that glorifies him or whether it is a, his word that points back to him, even the fallacy and uh, of the messenger of that does not negate the truth behind it, and I think it can still be beneficial. All right, good answers. Last choice. Here are your categories. Number one, no more pink balloons. Number two, spiritual gifts. All right, Kevin, let you choose. I'm, I'm going to go with no more pink balloons. Well, you, you chose an interesting one. I will say the spiritual gifts one is a Daniel Darling article this week where he says that Pot shots are not a spiritual gift, and at which point he calls out discernment bloggers and people like that um, that basically spend all of their time focused on identifying the errors of other groups, uh, other denominations, other churches, and other pastors. And he makes the point that being able to do that, being able to point out somebody else's errors, does not make you particularly adept or gifted. Here's the story you did choose, though. This week in Slate.com, Kristen Scarlett Malloy writes a very sobering article in which she makes the claim that doctors are doing something extremely damaging to newborns. And in over 99% of newborn births, the doctors are doing this, the title of the article is Don't Let the Doctor Do This to Your Newborn. The danger she's pointing out is gender assignment. In other words, the doctor examines your newborn and says it's a boy or it's a girl. She says this is potentially very harmful. In fact, she says infant gender assignment might just be playing Russian roulette with your baby's life. Here's her quote. What could be the harm in letting a child wait to declare for themselves who they are once they're old enough, which is generally believed to happen around two or three? So, gentlemen, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of suspense here. Do you like the idea of letting your child decide whether they're a boy or a girl at the age of two or three. Can, can I ask you a question just to make sure that David and I answer this correctly? I need to ask you a follow-up Shoot. question. Shoot. I'll give you the best I can. These babies, they're like born with identifying markers of whether they're boys that is or girls. Correct. That is correct. What She's kind of identifying about, markers are you talking about? Whoa. Angry code. <laughs> I, I think of a scene from Kindergarten Cop. The, uh, she is talking about, to be clear, uh, Malloy is talking about every child born. She is so we're, we're not warning. talking. We're not talking about um, 
uh, we're not talking about children who were born um, with, hermaphroditic. No, yeah, with, she's with both making the case that every parts. child born okay. should not have a gender assigned until they pick their own gender based on their preference when they're two or three. I have a headache. How about that racist billboard in Alabama? Um, Look, I, I could understand if she was making the argument about, like, if this was a homosexuality versus straight thing. But she is taking this to the, and I'm not saying that that would be right, but I'm not going to understand her making the argument as a, but I do not understand there, there are boys and there are girls, and this really isn't up to debate. Like, like I don't get to choose, is that a two or a three? Um, this is. It is or it isn't. It's, yeah. it's one or the other. Um, you know, it's, uh, this is where we're headed. I think this is where we're headed, and and we we've, you know, we can't do justice to the issues of, um, you know, of, of homosexuality and what the gospel says about that in, in just a short time. But but you know, anybody who's is you know, if you kind of go back and listen to some of the teaching that we've done here from Agape on those things, I am not someone who, you know, I I I, I don't put homosexuality up as a, as a you know. A, a higher sin or worse sin than, than other sins. I do believe that practicing that is a sin. I don't believe being tempted by that or having that type of persuasion is a sin. I bet giving into it and practicing In other words, same-sex attraction s- is not a sin. Same-sex attraction acted on Yes, that's what, what the Bible condemns. That is what I believe the Bible condemns. And I think that um, I do think, uh, in general, Christian churches have t- taken a, a heavy hand and, and probably a, a judgmental hand in this regard in such a way that's kind of pushed people um, who are struggling with that away. Having said that, having said that, I'm not a picketer. I'm not a guy who would necessarily go out and 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 quote unquote picket um, homosexual marriage uh, issues. But this is where we're headed. We're, we're heading where we are opening the door to all types of th- that. that 30 years ago we would have shaken our head out but 10 years ago we would have shaken our head out because i mean this i mean this almost seems ridiculous um well it does seem ridiculous to us but i mean it seems like it should seem ridiculous to everybody but it, it doesn't it doesn't this is where we're headed uh if i let my if if i if i went to my 2 year old and said hey are you a you know you a boy or girl they're going to say well what's that you know or if they came to me and said am i a boy or girl i mean they they don't understand that concept i mean that that's not they don't understand to decide on their own this is something that you tell them this is something that you teach them this is the you know the i think there was a story recently about a was a young boy or young girl that came to his parents and kept saying hey i'm i'm the opposite of what i you know what he was actually born to be and and so they just decided hey rather than cause him problems down the road we'll just let him be who he chooses to be but I mean, all they had to do was point him toward who he was. Yes. Not, not you know, children are not, they don't have the capability of deciding on these things. Yeah, if you, if you ever have raised a child, a child and, and all or of us. Or children. Or children. children uh, and child. we've all raised multiple children. One thing you're going to learn about them very quickly is they don't always know right from wrong. They don't always know good decisions from bad decisions. And and I think just because a child says, hey, I want to be something or I want to do something, doesn't mean you should let them. That's yeah. dangerous parenting. Well, I've come to the realization 
I want to be a horse, and I have been done wrong that the doctor declared I was a human being and not a horse. Well, you know, you make make that kind of outrageous claim, but that's where I'm saying we're going. I mean, one, you know, people, uh, again, uh, you know, one of the kind of catchphrases today is love is love. Okay, that you'll, you'll see that all over Twitter. You see that all over Facebook. Love is love. Let people choose who they love. But you know what someone would say? A 35-year-old would come along and say, yeah, that's right. I love my – I love that 7-year-old down the street. Yeah. Love is love. I love my animal, and I should be able to marry them the yeah. way people marry human. Love is love. And, and, and you know what? Most people who support homosexuality would say, no, 35-year-old. You yes. cannot marry an animal, and you cannot love a 7-year-old child. Yes. And here's what I ask. Where do you get that morality? Where, where do you? Where is that based in? Yes, if if there is not, I think I saw this on Twitter this week, maybe from uh, Keller. But if 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 there is not somewhere a straight line, you can't say anything's crooked. Exactly, that's so, a great quote. Somewhere you have to say there's a straight line, and and for for me, the Bible is that straight line. Yes. And so then, very clearly, no, you know, love is not love in every case. And like you said, even people who are pro homosexual marriage would there's going to be some point that they draw would, a line that they would draw a line somewhere and say love is not love but you know what who knows 20 years down the road or 30 years down the road what may happen and i think it's the same thing we're seeing here now in the transgender issue beginning for parents to, to let their children choose the gender that they're going to be and grow up to be uh, we, we again that is completely ignoring that there is a, a straight line somewhere yep. and and that we need to look back toward that straight line Figure out what is crooked and not. This is crooked, I lump it. Yeah. This is this is how Malloy closes out the article. She says, Letting the doctor choose the sex of your newborn. Sure, it usually works out for the best, but sometimes it goes horribly wrong. Just because an infant may survive being left alone in a car on a hot day while the parent runs to the store doesn't mean that parent made the right decision. In fact, they made a dangerous decision and just got lucky with the outcome. Do you guys understand? She is comparing the decision of letting your child born a male be a male or born a female be a female with leaving a baby in a car neglectfully on a hot day. I find that somewhat offensive. Uh, yeah. It, this, is, this goes back to many of the, I think even in the atheist community who talk about they they quote unquote call it the indoctrination of children. And so growing up, you know, you don't don't teach your children about God or you know just let them on their own figure things out and don't indoctrinate. But what they really mean by that is don't teach them about God because you want to grow up and reach yes. the conclusion that there that there is no God. Uh, this is the same thing. Directionless, directionless, directionless. Thank you. Say that for me. Uh, uh, child rearing and and train no training. Let's just let the child decide. It, it is an absolute ridiculous um, approach and 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 you know what most people would agree with that but that number will drop as we if, if we continue to go down this path that we're, we're headed down indeed. this society all right last words here to jesus matthew 19 verse 4 a lot of people in the homosexual community often bring up what they say is uh, they believe that Jesus never addressed the issue of gay marriage. Well, the fact of the matter is he taught much about marriage. He said, uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
So God made some to be male and some to be female and said, verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So in fact, Jesus addresses maleness and femaleness and marriage and, and the view of marriage that it's a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to a woman. All right, that's it for me. Over to you, Kevin. Uh, earlier this week, there's a, a pastor that I've been following for probably 10 to 15 years, church planner in Decatur. Uh, his name's Dave Anderson, and uh, at Movie Pastor, he got a pretty cool uh, Twitter handle. That is a cool Twitter handle. Uh, and one thing uh, I really liked about this guy is he's always been uh, cutting edge. I mean, he was one of the first people to uh, to do church in a movie theater, been on the cutting edge of podcasting, or not podcasting, but putting your sermons up on the internet, cutting edge of using YouTube. And so I've, I've been following him. He posted a tweet uh, for a blog of his that said, uh, did you know I don't tithe? And uh, the blog, the blog was oh, no a yeah. pastor that doesn't tie. Yeah, and uh, you get in there, and it's one of those that kind of tricks you with the headline. And basically, what he's saying is, I don't, I don't settle for the ten percent. I give fifteen percent. My goal is to one day give ninety, ninety-five percent. But the thing that was included in there is included a funny little uh, video. It was the tithe rap, and um, I kind of, as I do when I get on YouTube, I go down a a rabbit's trail and just find out like. Like lots of churches have done this tithe rap uh, video, which is very funny, but uh, it brings up the point that when tithing gets brought up in church, it seems to be very uncomfortable. People respond typically with, "Hey, you want my money?" and and to be honest with you, I, I feel that way as well. And I may have been spoiled because the church that I grew up in when I was a teenager, uh, they never took an offering. They mentioned tithing once a year, and at every service they'd say, "Hey, there's a basket at the back of the building." If you want to drop in your offering, and that church uh, supported some fifty or sixty missionaries, it wasn't a large church. Probably, you know, maybe one hundred and fifty people in the church supported. You know, thirty, forty, fifty missionaries, and uh, paid cash for their building when they built it. Uh, never had any debt without beating you overhead with tithing. So, I kind of thought since a lot of times people have a negative reaction to tithing, and uh, or to the teaching on tithing and probably has a lot to do with tithing comes up a lot of times when the church isn't meeting budget or when there's a building program. And I was thinking, how do you guys feel about that? What's your view on a church teaching tithing? When's it appropriate? When's it not appropriate? How do you do it without offending people? I think, uh, Chase, we referenced your recent sermon here at Agape. Um, tithe or die. Do you, do, do, yeah. <laughs> uh, would you like to avoid hell? Tithe. Well, that was part two of okay. tithe or die. <laughs> Hey, suffice a, to say, we believe in tithing around here. Okay, yes, it Strongly. is a joke. Tither dies. I will say I this. I'm going to get a t-shirt with that. I'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote, and then, David, you can give a more substantive response. I was raised uh, in church uh, by uh, my mom and dad, who loved me very much and, and treated me well. And uh, we went to some uh, some big churches, some nice churches. One thing I learned uh, uh about church in the early days is almost every time the pastor gave a sermon on tithing or on giving. And, and I'll be honest with you, we never went to word faith churches or manipulative churches, or at least that I could tell. We did go to a church that went through a big building program, and that might have been part of the problem. But for the most part, 
I didn't ever, I don't remember any uh, manipulative calls to give, but every time there was a sermon on giving, my parents on the way home and once they got home, they would fuss about it. Now, not maliciously, most of the time they actually liked the pastor they were fussing about, uh, which actually makes me wonder what people say around the dinner table around here (laughs) on Sundays, but uh, they would fuss hard any time he talked about giving, or the different pastors talked about giving, no matter what was said. And you know what? As I grew up and I've been in ministry for 20 years, any time I teach on giving now, and it's rare, to be frank, it, it's quite rare, I feel guilty, and I worry because I don't want people at the church to go home and do the same thing, complain, and think, hey, he's just in it for the money. You know, I think I think here. I think we go off uh, on both sides. Um, yes, too far. Uh, the the fact is, I think I think biblically, um, tithing, giving um, is is there principle wise. And I think what happens is that there are uh, maybe on one side over here you have um, you have uh, people and pastors who who teach it, and and they probably um, almost like. Uh, Used car salesman or something. It, it's it's probably too much focus, and maybe they're concerned with uh, well, people not giving and not being able to support the church, not being able to support salaries, not being able to support ministry, and so we just got to constantly push it and push it and push it, and um, and probably focus uh, you know an over focus on the other side. I think you have people who just basically in response to that and maybe in response to seeing it done wrong, um, and, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, it is done wrong by many, um, I think by many Christian leaders. Um, and, and when I say wrong, I think in manipulative ways you know, that you see in ministries. Um, but I think on the other side, you have people who respond by just trying to write it off at all and say, oh, well, you know, there is almost like there is no reason for Christians to consider giving, or it is... God is completely neutral in it. Give or don't give, God is happy either way. You know, they're, they're, you know, God is not. Uh, uh, God is not concerned. It's 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 basically completely your choice, and God is completely neutral on the issue. And I actually don't think that is accurate either. I, th- I think what we need to do is go back to a biblical uh, concept of tithing and giving, and and teach what the word says, and not overdo it and over push it, but at the same time not try to write it off because I think it is there and, and an important part of life, an important part of the Christian life. That's a good point. I'll say this, Kevin, two, three, four years into pastoring uh, the, the church I'm at, I remember I was just kind of, I wasn't I wasn't reading through the Bible for a particular lesson, but I was just kind of reading through First and Second Corinthians, and I got to Second Corinthians 9, verse 6, and this is what Paul says. He says, the point is this, whoever sows or gives essentially sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver and you skip down to verse 10 he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich in every way to be generous in every way. And I read that and I was just, I was pierced by the Holy Spirit and and by the word. And I realized there's a promise in here. It's not the word faith promise that is manipulated that if you give, you'll be rich. That's not in there. The promise is 
If you give, then your needs will be met and you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. In other words, if you give, God's going to give more to you to give more. And it's going to increase your harvest of righteousness, not necessarily your bank account. And, and I remember thinking, I'm not teaching the people that. I'm running away from that because I'm worried that they're going to think uh, I have a uh, conflict of interest. And in other words, I was holding back an important part of the word because not necessarily fear of man in the sense that I was I was in fear and trembling, but in the sense of I just didn't want people to think I was, you know, a money grubber or a word faith kind of guy. And I, that really pierced me. That really hit me. Yeah, and I think that, you know, going back to that, and see, I think that's why, for me, if you run the other direction and don't teach on it, if somebody were to ask me today, well, what, what do you, you know, I believe in the Old Testament there was a command and a requirement to tithe, uh, which was, you know, the tithe literally a 10% of the first fruits. But even in the Old Testament, by the way, there was more than one tithe that was required of them. I believe there were three tithes that were required of them. Um, two that were yearly and one that was every three years. So some people have made the case that technically it was a uh, more like 23% than just 10% um, that, that they were commanded to give. You get to the New Testament and people say, well, there's really – the New Testament doesn't do away with tithing. The New Testament doesn't necessarily um, promote it either or teach on it. You have some verses where Jesus talked about people who were tithing and said, yes, this you should do. Um, but what the New Testament does talk about over and over is be generous people. Yes. Like you're talking about Second Corinthians Give. chapter 9. Give, be generous. And it even uses Jesus as an example, saying here is someone who is rich, gave up everything he had to come to earth so that other people could have, and other people could have gain. And not talking about financial gain there, but gaining life. And so you be like Christ. And so I don't believe if someone comes along and says, well, I'm not a tither, I'm a grace giver, uh, which I'm fine with, but if you use that to say, well, I'm going to give less, I, I don't think that's what grace giving is. I, I think the biblical call is to generosity. Be sacrificially generous to God and his people the way that the way that Christ was. And two things about that. Number one, I don't think pastors should be afraid to preach that. I think they should preach the word on that and not be afraid that, well, if I don't give a, tell them a certain amount, they won't give enough. I don't think preachers should be ashamed of that word. I think they should preach it because if they don't, these Christians are not going to have um, the full picture of, of gospel life. Number two, Jesus talked a lot about it. And I think it's important. And one of the reasons I still do tell people and suggest maybe someone should start with tithing is because tithing does, while I wouldn't say it's a command of the New Testament, I think tithing does teach you systematic giving. It does teach you how to budget a certain amount that you're going to give um, every, you know, whatever, every month or something like that. And you learn to do that systematically. And so I think it's a good starting point. But generosity is what the New Testament points us to. Be generous. How about uh, the guys out there in uh, the Twitter and the Facebook? Hit us up with your opinions at hashtag tithe to live. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I like hashtag tithe or die. Chase came up with. Or how about hashtag tithe two cents? Nice. 
But you, we, we would like to hear from you at uh, My Gospel Friends, at My Gospel Friends on Twitter, and in the Hall of Dogma on uh, Facebook. Just search for those groups. We want to hear some of your input. Yeah, by the way, I think that's one of the things that, that, that Satan has done um, – has done such a good job at taking something that is a biblical truth and then getting people in the name of Christ that call themselves Christians and pastors and teachers manipulative and then it it, it somehow the all the truth gets thrown out with that. that that manipulation of the truth people don't just go back to what the original truth was they go back to a far reaching uh, falsehood way you know way far away uh, and and I think that happens in in so many segments of the Bible and I think that's happened with with giving as well with that issue of tithing. But yeah, I would like to hear what some, uh, maybe even if you have examples of where you've seen it done right or where you've seen it done really wrong, send those in and um, and put them on the air sometime. Good deal. Well, gentlemen, that gets us to the after show. So how about we open up with the fail of the week and then David, your story about the nanny that refuses to be fired. Yeah, we'll talk about that. All right, who's going with fail of the week first? Uh, I'll lead off since right. uh, I, I have a pretty so quick So basically, one. essentially, this segment is um, where you have recently sucked at life. Yes. Okay. Okay. So mine wasn't exactly totally my, my fault, but it does involve— <laughs> Of course it wasn't. Uh, —a scantily clad woman and Victoria's Secrets. So um, just to let you know, this might be a little bit saucier of a fail of the week. Yesterday, I was at the mall. Wait, I'm with... writing all this down so I know what to tell <laughs> tell Captain Crunchy's wife. Oh, she on. was she was close by. We were my whole family was at the mall. We had just gotten through eating at uh, eating at Jason's Deli, a fine uh, establishment. Who were you with? Uh, just by ourselves. Okay, all right, don't be jealous. Check and see what I missed out on. Uh, by, by ourselves. Um, you guys were at a work party. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we had we gone were. to Avondale Park, a nice place. Uh, walking out from Jason's Deli, I'm with my six-year-old and my 13-year-old, my six-year-old little girl, and we walk by Victoria's Secrets, which if you've ever been by that store, uh, I hope this isn't uh, uh, breaking too much confidence, but uh, there's a lot of pictures of scantily clad yeah. women all over the By the way, the we eat at that Jason's Deli all the time. We make that same walk, and it's always uh, head down, Yes, eyes at the feet. Well, my six-year-old took it upon herself to very uh, loudly warn me uh, and my son and and Chloe to uh, my oldest daughter to not look and to look away. <laughs> so, we as we walked along, she said, "Keep looking away, keep looking away, don't look, Daddy." And, and of course, I, I wasn't, I wasn't. And finally, we got to the end, and she said, "Okay, you can look now." And I turned around and looked, and lo and behold, my face essentially was right in front of a woman wearing a thong. And I I kind of jumped. It surprised me so much. And she looked, too, because she saw my surprise. And she pushed me and said, oh, my gosh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Daddy. (laughs) Okay. All right, so your your six-year-old... Yes. Is being your covenant eyes, uh, she, essentially, she was on, trying, the, yes. on the walk. She had the right heart, but uh, her vigilance failed, failed right there, right at, the there end, at the end. Yeah. And That's I looked a, when she told me to look, so I did confess learned. that to my wife. I, I hope she forgave me. Lesson learned. By the way, I actually, maybe we can talk about it sometime. I actually don't think that um, the uh, the old cliche, what is it, the uh, jogger eyes... Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that's the best approach to. No. Uh, no, I think that's a good approach for walking past Victoria's Secret on the way to Jason's Deli, but probably not the best approach to. Well, the best approach lust. is the old pluck your eyes out. 
it's got a sense of finality to it. Yeah, I would like to try to avoid that though too. I, I hoping there's like a middle of the road there. But um, yeah, it's called compromise. Up, up to you, David. Not compromise. <laughs> All right. So my fail of the week was I was actually I was trying to be. This is a couple of weeks ago, but I was trying to be a good dad. Um, you know, uh, a lot of Sundays I have uh, teaching responsibilities, uh, leadership responsibilities, and so my wife is is often with the with the kids. Uh, but this particular Sunday, um, I uh, there were other people who were teaching and leading, and so I uh, kind of quote unquote had the Sunday of. Uh, off responsibility wise, so I take care of our two year old son, um, who we recently adopted, and uh, and so I'm kind of sitting in the floor with him and just trying to let my wife just kind of enjoy herself in the back of the sanctuary, and and so uh, uh, I decided I was going to move from one place to another with my son. I'd given him; it was a brilliant idea. I mean, it was brilliant. I I, I was like, why is why does my wife always have so much trouble? All he needs is markers and a piece of paper, and he'll be all set. So he's in the floor playing with the markers and piece of paper. And I decided we needed to kind of move a little further back because he was, you know, he was really enjoying it, making a lot of noise. And so, so I just, I handed him his marker, handed him the paper. I said, come on, buddy, let's, you know, let's walk. And so I'm letting him walk beside me. And, and, you know, here we go toward the back. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he takes off. Yeah, I'm not holding his hand. So he just decides, hey, I'm, I'm going to make a break for it. And he runs, and he's heading toward my wife where she's sitting in the back. So I thought, oh, it's it's fine. He's just running to her. I'll go get him. No, he ran right past her, up the aisle to the front of the sanctuary where the preacher was preaching, ran around him, and all of a sudden the entire church is looking at him as he runs across the front of Beautiful. the uh, front uh, where, where the preacher is. Um, he then does a head dive because he tripped and um, <laughs> had the markers in his hand and falls flat down. And, and so – Kudos to Pastor Chase, who was teaching, didn't miss a beat, just looked up and said, oh, hey, Jack. <laughs> and uh, But uh, fell the week on my part, my wife was not happy with me. I <laughs> That's was great. Uh, she, was, she was not pleased at all. As um, I was trying to do a good thing, but um, my not recognizing that he would make a break for it uh, earned me a, a, a fell of the week. And We've I all apologize. been in that position before. I apologize, honey, for that. And she did remark, I noticed that you didn't run after him. She ended up having to be the run. <laughs> she had to go to the front of the church and pick him up and bring him back, looking like she had let him go, and that appeared to be part of the <laughs> that appeared to be part of the fail. So reminds me of a story of something happened between you and I at work. Uh, anyway, we don't need to talk about that, Kevin. What what's your fail of the week? Hey, that sounds interesting. <laughs> um, my fail of the week uh, comes from this morning. Um I had the opportunity to teach this morning and I had this brilliant idea since I was going to teach on um, Be Still and Know That I Am God, that I was going to do the first five minutes of the service by using cue cards to really kind of set the mood of what being still really was, maybe get people a little anxious, make a point. You were not making a sound. You were just putting up the cue cards. I was there. And uh, I get about a a third of the way, maybe half the way through of like 40-something cue cards, and realized when I referenced uh, biblical verses, it was uh, V-E-R-S-U-S instead of V-E-R-S-E-S. And I had that awkward thing, do I break the, do I break the, the silence and let, and let people know that I'm not an idiot, or do I stick with the point and then people are distracted by the fact I am an idiot? You know, it was interesting because I was sitting there and I saw it come up. I was like, oh, he spelled verses wrong. And then I was wondering if you knew it and if you would handle it. And um, I, I'm not sure what I would have done in that situation because 
you, you look breaking the silence kind of broke the illustration but then at the same time you didn't want people to know that you were completely clueless about I, well people were, were paying good attention to that and I will tell you this uh, your the the man you're substituting for his daughter leaned over to your daughter David I think about two minutes in and said of you, can he not talk anymore? <laughs> Which I thought was really funny because she was totally sincere. Well, you know, we actually had uh, more children in than we normally do, and I actually thought there is a child out there who thinks, oh, my goodness, he is going to do this entire sermon with cue cards. <laughs> and actually looking at the, some of the faces out there, I think there were some adults that had that fear as well. By the way, it was a good illustration. It Thank was a good you. illustration. Hey, Just, everybody uh, was paying attention. I looked around to check. But it is 2014, and um, we have spell check. Although, I, I guess, actually, that would have worked. It would have worked. Spell check, because yeah. you spelled verses wrong. It was just the wrong. We need a context check. Yeah, exactly. Microsoft <laughs> needs to come out with that. All right, we're going to end today, guys, um, moving from the fell of the week, talking about the fell of the week. A California family is stumped about what to do with a live-in nanny that refuses to work, refuses to be fired, and refuses to leave. I would just like to hear from some of our listeners on the West Coast, because this is this is foreign to us. We, we record this from the southern United States of America in the state of Alabama, and it strikes me how different we are in, in different parts of our country, because this happened in California on the West Coast. Essentially, uh, this family hired a nanny, Diane Stretton, uh, to come and live in their home, take care of their children, ages 11, 4, and 1. Uh, she was supposed to help out around the house, take care of the kids, in exchange for room and board. Okay, so, hey, you live here, we'll feed you, give you a place to live, pay for the utilities and stuff. You help us with the kids clean up around the house. The nanny um, said yes, signed on, worked for a couple of weeks, and then decided, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm done. I I don't want to work anymore. And so she refused to come out of her room and work. And not only did she refuse to come out of the room, but she began to um, uh, post uh, certain hours that she would like the family to leave the house so she could have some quiet time. And so the family uh, decided, well, if you're if you're not actually going to work, then you need to leave. And she refused to leave. She said, no, this is my home. This is you know, this is where I live. And so they called the police only to find out that because they had agreed to let her live there, the only way they could get rid of her would be to go to the courts and file an eviction notice and go through the legal process of having her removed from the home. Oh, my God. As of this day, I believe that um, she's still been living there, although I read this morning that um, she had not been seen in, in like 24 hours by the family. Um, although, as I'm saying, that sounds a little suspicious. But I don't think they did anything to her. <laughs> this a so he, here's my thing, guys, just, just kind of on the way out. If that Love happened, If that happened in Alabama... How long would that nanny last in that house? Oh, man. About 15 minutes. I know a guy in Blunt County, (laughs) 35 bucks. I mean, she would be. That's a good deal. She'd be on the side of the road with all of her bags packed and and a, a very gentle boot print right where grandmas shouldn't have boot prints. Could you imagine this case on Judge Judy? No. Or Nanny 911. I have a friend, but look, I have. That was good. I have a friend, by the way, who was a pastor out in California. And in talking to him, I actually found out that like it, California really has very strict, odd laws, and you can get sued out there for just about anything. They actually have found out now that this nanny has done this um, a dozen or so times and has sued a dozen or so families um, who 
threw her out after that Ooh, she had that. So ouch. she apparently had kind of made a, a life out of this. So That's awesome. So, guys, check on your nannies before you, you bring them in. And let them live in your house. And give them room, room and board. Yeah, not cool. You know, hey, hey, you know what they started doing since they couldn't evict her? They started having, they invited all their friends over. Okay, they invited all their friends over and asked them to please stay the night, stay up as late as they could, make as as much noise as they possibly could, and sleep anywhere in the house, in the hall, in the floor. They decided to make it as uncomfortable for her as possible. So, that's a good plan. Yeah, I mean, look, what I'd do is uh, load up a, a heavy bass stereo, point it at the door, and play because I'm happy twenty four hours a day. <laughs> Seven days a week, loudly and distortedly. That song has been in my head all week, and that's why I would do that because that person would be crazy. Would you do the uh, Would you do the original version or the Elevation Church version? Oh, that's a good question. Chew on that and let us know. That's that's awesome. So, folks, you can check us out at thegospelfriends.com. That's our website. Be sure, if you're listening on Stitcher Radio or something like that, we'd love to have you subscribe to us on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for The Gospel Friends or your podcasting app, and your reviews are greatly appreciated, especially the good ones. You can also join the discussion online and Facebook at The Hall of Dogma. Kevin, thank you so much for sitting in for Nick for the week. Tell Kevin what a great job he did on Twitter, at Angry Code. Is it Angry underscore? Angry underscore code. Hey, thanks for joining us. I have a feeling you'll be back. Well, thank you. I enjoyed point. it. And as we leave today and sign off, you'll be listening to the music of one Sean Lombard, as always. And you can find him, SeanLombard.com, L-O-M-B-A-R-D. Floor. See you next week. Something